from the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I'm recording this podcast on Monday, March 2nd, and I've chosen three articles that are published this week that I think shed light on different aspects of our practice. First, we're going to look at a very interesting study from the Nurses' Health Study and the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study looking at potentially the value of olive oil consumption. I want to go over a consensus document looking at ways to prevent, diagnose, and treat cardiac implantable device infections. And then lastly, a really nice article looking at outcomes of TAVR in patients with bicuspid aortic valve disease. So let's start with olive oil. The question of this study was whether olive oil consumption is associated with a reduction in total cardiovascular disease and coronary heart disease-related events and stroke. Remember the Nurses' Health Study. This was a study of over 61,000 women from 1990 to 2014. And remember the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study, also from 1990 to 2014, looking at nearly 32,000 men. And these were individuals who were free of cancer, heart disease, and stroke at enrollment, and they were followed. Their diet was assessed using a food frequency questionnaire, which had 130 items, at baseline and then every four years. The cardiovascular risk factors were self-reported, and they followed these people for a primary outcome, major cardiovascular event, which was a composite of non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, fatal stroke, fatal MI, or other cardiovascular events. And they used Cox proportional hazards analysis to estimate hazard ratios associated with olive oil consumption. Over the study from 1990 to 2010, the mean consumption of olive oil increased from 1.3 grams to 4.2 grams per day. And this was associated with a decrease in margin. Remember that um, solid margins were removed from the market due to high levels of trans fat. During 24 years of follow-up, there were almost 10,000 incident cases of cardiovascular disease, 6,000 coronary heart disease events, and about 3,800 strokes. After adjusting for major diet and lifestyle factors, compared with non-consumers, those who had higher olive oil intake, that would be more than 7 grams per day, appeared to have about a 14% lower risk of cardiovascular disease, and the hazard ratio was around 082 there was not a significant association with stroke. They estimated that if you replaced five grams per day of margarine, butter, mayonnaise, or dairy fat with an equivalent amount of olive oil, that there would be a five to 7% lower risk of total cardiovascular death or disease and coronary heart disease. There were no associations when they compared olive oil to other plant-based oils. And there was a subset in whom there was biomarkers and labs and higher olive oil intake was associated with lower levels of circulating inflammatory biomarkers and a better lipid profile. So they concluded that higher olive oil intake was associated with uh, lower risk of coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease in two large prospective cohorts of U.S. men and women, and that the substitution of margarine, butter, dairy, mayonnaise, fat from dairy would lead to lower CHD and CVD risk if you used olive oil. It's interesting to consider the consumption of olive oil use in the United States, which is 
say 12 grams per day. In the Mediterranean diet, it's over 25 grams per day. And in European studies, there was a study which suggested that a healthy cohort had a 7% reduction of, of coronary heart disease-related risk for every 10 grams increase in olive oil. And extra virgin olive oil appeared to reduce CV events by almost a third in high-risk patients. There was another study looking at regular olive oil use in Italian women survivors of an MI, and there was about a 40% risk reduction. The benefits of olive oil appear to be related to inflammation, endothelial function, hypertension, insulin sensitivity, diabetes, and lipid profiles. So this is probably maybe the best U.S. study to date endorsing the notion that olive oil is certainly beneficial to cardiovascular health, and particularly when it's substituting for other types of fat which are less healthy. Let's shift gears now, and I'm going to a consensus document on the way to prevent, diagnose, and treat cardiac implantable electronic device infections. This is from the European Heart Rhythm Association, the Heart Rhythm Society, and several other societies. And they did a nice job of looking at how to think about risk for CIED infection and then how to prevent them. In terms of prevention, pre-procedure, think about whether a patient might be a candidate for a leadless pacemaker or a subcutaneous ICD as alternative devices that are available now. They also recommend that prophylactic antibiotics prior to the procedure should be done and they should cover Staphylococcus aureus at the minimum. Periprocedure, there are several things we can do to reduce the risk of infections. One of them is to avoid bridging with heparin. This results, of course, in a reduction in hematoma, which is associated with risk. Irrigation with an antibiotic within the pocket is probably not recommended based on the recent PADIT, P-A-D-I-T, trial. In high-risk patients that were included in the RAPID trial, they might benefit from an antimicrobial mesh envelope around the generator. Post-procedure, post-operative antibiotics are less clearly recommended in these patients, but pre-op, we want them on board. Obviously, the diagnosis of uh, infection is generally straightforward. It includes swelling, erythema, warmth, pain, and a discharge. Obviously, er erosion of the skin or exposed leads or generators, that's obvious. Intracardiac echo can be used to detect vegetations in PET, and CT can identify abnormal inflammatory activity in the pocket or along the leads that might suggest infection. Pocket or lead cultures are essential for satisfying the microbiological criteria that we need for antibiotic therapy. In terms of management, complete removal is required for treatment of a definite CIED infection. Although antibiotic therapy alone may increase apparent symptoms, it actually could increase mortality because the infection is not adequately treated. Isolated pocket infections should be treated with antibiotics for 14 days after removal before new implantation. And if it's been a systemic infection, endocarditis, then typically four to six weeks of antibiotics are needed. In patients who have an implantable defibrillator device, antibiotic prophylaxis are not recommended for dental, respiratory, GI, or GU procedures. Obviously, in these types of patients, a wearable cardioverter defibrillator may be a bridge for very high-risk patients, potentially a subcutaneous ICD and or leadless pacemaker may be needed. The 30-day mortality for a CIED infection is high. It's 5 to 
higher risk in women, in patients with endocarditis, and in patients who have end-stage renal disease. There appears to be a relationship between the operator and center experience and the risk of infection. There's an inverse relationship between operator experience and infection rate, and operators who've done less than 100 total procedures appear to have higher risk, and they should be supervised. Generally, the recommendation is an annual volume of at least 50 CIED procedures is recommended for operators. So a nice summary consensus statement with some key points in patients uh, where we're trying to prevent, diagnose, and treat implantable cardioverter electronic device infections. Uh, The last paper I want to talk about today was published this week in Circulation, and it looks at the outcomes of TAVR in patients with bicuspid aortic valve disease. It's a report from the STS, ACC, and TVT registry. Obviously, early on, the design of the TAVR valves appeared to be suboptimal in patients with bicuspid valve disease with a much higher rate of perivalvular leak and aortic valve regurgitation. Now that we've seen much progress in design, this registry really looks at whether or not the bicuspid valve patient is now a reasonable candidate for a TAVR. So this was a study of a very large registry, almost 200,000 patients who were implanted from 2011 to 2018. Valve morphology was assessed in various ways with CT, TEE, or ECHO. Of the nearly uh, 170,000 patients who made it into this analysis after exclusion, roughly 5,000 of them had bicuspid valve disease. And as you might expect, they were a little younger, 74 versus 82 years. And their STS predicted risk of mortality was 3.8% versus 5.6%. 81% of the procedures were performed with current generation devices. That would be Sapien 3 and Evolute R. And the Sapien 3 valve was used in the majority of patients with both tricuspid and bicuspid valves. Overall device success was slightly lower in the BAV group, but it was 96% versus about 97%. And more BAV patients needed a second device, but it was still only 1.7% versus 1.2%. And the mean gradients were similar, 10 versus 9, and the valve area was essentially the same. The amount of post-procedure residual moderate or worse aortic insufficiency was slightly higher in BAV, 4.7% versus 3.5%. And if you look at the current generation devices, it's even better, around 2.7% versus 2.1%. No difference in hospital mortality, stroke, or major bleeding. And at one year, the hazard ratio for death was actually slightly lower on the BAV patients, probably because of their younger age. So the authors concluded in this registry that patients with BAV who had TAVR using uh, current generation devices, had outcomes that were really quite good and actually comparable to patients who have a tricuspid valve. Now remember, this is a registry study. So this is not something that you can apply to all comers. They used Medicare claims data to get follow-up outcome, and that would be inappropriate. Of course, patients who are not on Medicare would not be followed appropriately. And also very important to consider the notion that patients who had aortopathy were very likely excluded from this particular study. So this does not include all comers with BAV, but it, I think, is reassuring 
that in patients who are considered to be higher risk for mortality for surgical aortic valve replacement who have a TAVR with current generation devices, they do quite well, and it certainly is very encouraging when you consider just a few years ago, we were thinking about aortic valve insufficiency rates closer to 10%. This is really quite remarkable. Well, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. We've talked about olive oil consumption. We've talked about how to prevent infections in patients who get electronic implantable devices, pacemakers, ICDs, and a really, really nice look from registry science at the current outcome of TAVR in patients with bicuspid valve aortopathy. You can find the articles as well as the journal scans of this week's material on the website. Also, make sure you check under the education and meeting tabs to find all of the educational offerings that are available to you on acc.org. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.